which makes me which makes it funny. It's like they apparently at the New Yorker people refer to David Remnick as dad, which is truly disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like Re- really healthy labor dynamic mm-hmm. there. Yes. I also yes. like how all the coverage of the New Yorker union, you can just feel the writer trying to siphon off some of the New Yorker, like that New Yorker pedigree that you get from keeping the umlaut over like the second E in preeminent or whatever. You know what I mean? (laughs) The writers met to discuss the decision by some of the less prestigious (laughs) members of the New Yorker family. The lower cast freelancers. No, No, it's very much like, I feel like the New, what is the New Yorker Glen Gary Glen Ross like you know <laughs> coffee is for people who write really tepid reviews of horror movies Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show and get access to all of our weekly Patreon-exclusive episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. We do two a week, so that's the only way to get access to all of the bonus episodes. We Mm -hmm. unlocked our Fake Friends bonus episode from last week, so uh, that should be in the main feed as well. But there's like over a hundred of them there, so if you've run out of recent Death Panel episodes, (laughs) become a patron. With plugs done... Uh, so today we're going to talk about the uh, disappearing of long-term care from the bipartisan yeah. infrastructure plans that are being peddled right now. But first, um, a new caucus has been formed in Congress <laughs> that is going to fix capitalism once and for all. You heard it here first. We'd like to introduce the Stakeholder Capitalism Caucus. Oh, my God. Um, they are here to turn down the cruelty on the rapacious corporate greed in America, ushering in a new era of kinder, gentler B corporations that are here to rule over our new shiny ethical capitalist climate wasteland. Yeah, I, I love this because it's like we've met the uh, the problem solvers, right? The, uh, the like... <laughs> bipartisan moderate fire brands who are going to fix American politics or whatever. But I don't know when I imagine this, I just kind of imagine like an increasingly like when I think about Congress and stuff like this, the uh, stakeholder capitalism caucus, Mm -hmm. which, you know, as I guess we'll get into like stakeholder capitalism is like saying ethical investing. It's basically meaningless. Like, you know what I mean? Um, But the (laughs) but like I just I don't know when I imagine Congress and stuff like this, I just imagine like a kind of increasing like a litany of increasingly infantilized caucus groups like the like i don't know national debt night's watch or like <laughs> the, i don't know like like the hungry boys conference or like i don't know like the kid cuisine caucus is basically like what i'm talking about i, I don't did know, find you know out I mean? that there like, is a real caucus called the algae caucus too that was revived in 2013 right. yes so that cool. might already just sort of be a congressional reality but i would love for like a new generation of bullshit caucuses to just become the trend <laughs> du jour for House members trying to make a name for themselves in this like new corporate landscape that they think is sort of happening right now. Um, I mean, in the announcement, so House Democrats Dean Phillips of Minnesota and Chrissy uh, Chrissy Houlihan of Pennsylvania have launched this stakeholder capitalism 
caucus and in the presentation that they did on Zoom that was on YouTube that I watched where they were announcing it, it's interesting because Houlihan gives this whole like she makes this whole point of like, well, you know, millennials don't like capitalism anymore, which is why we need to launch this caucus to usher in this new era, because we need to really rebrand what's going on here in the United States. Yeah. I mean, I so like caucuses, I feel like caucuses are to Congress what blogs were to writing, you know, <laughs> like circa 2005. Like you, it doesn't take too much to start a, a caucus. Yeah, I, I'd start one right now if I wanted and when, to. And when you start one, it's not, it's, uh, you know, in that period, it's, it's just a hop, skip and a jump to getting some sort of startup seed capital, right? Yeah. Who's to yeah. say that your caucus can't also be a venture capital firm, right? Yeah. This is the new oh, box. Yeah. You heard it here first. It's the new box. <laughs> well, the so like this is the thing is like so you have like there are a very small number of caucuses that in fact are able to like do anything powerful legislatively. And it's exceedingly small. Like in history there, I could probably count them on maybe just one hand. Um, so the, like the question that immediately comes up for me is like, who? is the audience for this right this is like uh the shareholder capitalism thing it's not like so it's not the problem solvers caucus in the sense that like the problem solvers caucus exists to say that there is an alternative to uh fiscal legislation that spends less and is more you know austere like that's the only reason they exist there's no there's no real like other policy kind of thing and it's just to like sort of brand themselves as being the uh you know, whatever the, the reasonable ones. And, right. and the thing that's really funny about that is that they failed utterly to do that because every time they come out with something, some more conservative group of Republicans and Democrats get together <laughs> and do something even more limited. So like if you guys were trying to dominate that space, y'all failed on that. Uh, the, the stakeholder capitalism <laughs> caucus though, it's not even clear to me like legislatively they're like oh yeah what we want is like a german style concertative system of like labor management relations i feel like this is the caucus for people who turn on npr once a week and are like huh you know ben and jerry's kind of a cool they kind of do good stuff and they're like you know wouldn't that be nice and it's, it's like the hilarious thing about this like stakeholder capitalism idea is it's just like this like the most ahistorical you know it's like th- there are reasons why financial capitalism shareholder sort of prizing shareholders like one over time like stakeholder capitalism is essentially what they're talking about is managerial capitalism of the Mm -hmm. early 20th century which disappeared (laughs) not simply because they're like oh that isn't a good idea anymore they're like structural reasons why that disappeared but they're like but you have these companies like ben and jerry's and like i don't know what are the other companies uh like all birds you know just like companies that say that they only work with vendors who uh pay fair wages which is like like this ceo gave away four percent of his cut his salary by four percent so that his uh employees could get health care or whatever that he should have been giving them in the first place but let's all fucking clap that kind of thing (laughs) you know what i mean like yeah that is i think that is what the stakeholder capitalism thing is here which again i think to to echo what phil's saying is there's a reason that ethical approaches quote-unquote ethical approaches to a fundamentally exploitative system not only lose out but are fundamental contradictions right yeah i mean i i think a lot of times people like people who uh try and forward these ideas really frame it as like well for too long we've only considered shareholders and it's time to also in addition i'm not saying you can't make a lot of money 
I'm saying you also have to treat your workers like, um, you know, like they are bought into your system in some capacity, because if you just completely alienate them, extract from them, you know, and then don't give them a sort of pat on the back and a pizza day once a year, like you're asking for a revolt, buddy. Well, and it's like pure fantasy because then the language that they use is, quote, uh, we in this caucus can restore the true role of business in society and create shared and durable prosperity for all. Like The true you know, role. It's, yeah, I mean, it's just, It's you like know, Arthur pulling the sword out of the stone. It makes, like, it, it makes sense if some people actually believe this stuff to me. Like, I mean, I, I get how it seems like, I get how the, I get how the rhetoric works. I mean, the red, like it's, it sounds cute and everything. They even explicitly referenced the thing that we made fun of like two years ago when it was announced, which was the uh, like JP Morgan Chase and mm-hmm. other companies led initiative to like make a like make a just like common language pledge with no actual timetable or plan or a- any meaningful sort of promises or proclamations to do quote unquote like ethical capitalism or to, you know, which like you know, has manifested in nothing except for apparently now this like fucking Burger King kids club caucus of people who <laughs> think that, yeah, that's the, that's the direction, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to appear. Cause I think really what this is, is like, Oh, the democratic party has an image problem. Um, you saw that even in this thing that we didn't talk about, which was like, there was this one of the only big postmortems on the 2020 election that I have seen or that was reported on is this big thing that fucking third way did um, the, the think tank third way centrist think tank third way the third um, way <laughs> yeah, which, which like uh, the the PDF of which uh, big scare quotes here leaked to the New York Times and you know says a bunch of stuff that you would expect which is like oh they like defund the police scared people away and there's a really common conception that socialism that you know the Democratic Party is the party of socialism and I think this is just totally intended to get around that right it's like and I mean to not very well like obviously they're not <laughs> doing a good job of we're, we're covering this as almost like a, an oddity or an absurdity because I don't think anyone's meaningfully actually talking about there's like an article in CQ roll call or whatever <laughs> who are just like fucking deficit hawk idiots but yeah like, I mean it's it's really a, a, a an effort to rebrand the sort of chamber of commerce framing yeah. as this like you know don't foreclose on the American dream it's not that we've been wrong it's that like we've let these sort of fundamental um, ethics not morals they'll never say morals because that you know there's like a huge difference between the two um, that you know we've let these ethics lapse and we just need to return to the ethics rules and codes that defined allowable corporate conduct in you know this more gentle way that that made workers feel like they were participating in the grand project because actually that's what a lot of this rebranding is is that you know what they're really what what the uh the stakeholder capitalism caucus is actually critiquing here is the fact that workers have been sort of uh left out of the corporate culture in this push towards like you know centering on shareholder profits and all they're really advocating for is just sort of a return to a company town vibe right it's they're not let me just be very clear what they're not talking about like because y- you could frame it as like well there are these alternatives within capitalism like a uh, worker owned like reggiano cheese like in, in, <laughs> right. in italy right um they're not talking about that. that that that's that's so far from what they're talking about what they're talking right. about is like occasionally wouldn't it be nice if a ceo 
was like, we will give, you know, like, what? oh, maybe maybe we can, like, do something nice for the workers uh, once in a while and, like, maybe have some, like, federal policies that will occasionally sort of uh, encourage that. I mean, and, and it's sort of, I think the really funny thing is there are these companies out there, like, whatever, Ben & Jerry's, where, like, I think that the part of the brand, part of the commodity itself is this image of the way that the company runs. Like, oh, that's absolutely. part of the commodity. Um right. But the this idea that in the past that uh, there was this uh, thing that capitalists just did because it was the right thing to do, right? That it was this moral decision to oh, our Andrew Carnegie, he's just going to like create libraries. I was right? just going to yeah, say, I no, mean, no. Pittsburgh boy talking here. Yeah, <laughs> it's, like, it's like no, no, they didn't create libraries because it was like the right thing to do. They created libraries because and, and other like social institutions because <laughs> they the were facing pitchforks away. <laughs> yeah, they were facing the possibility of like massive labor unrest at all times. Yeah. So this idea is like, if you really want, if you like, I would think it would be hilarious if if. Yeah, there was a, an ethical capitalism caucus, but instead what it uh, advocated for was just r- radical like labor actions at all times is like complete uh, general strikes. And it's like, yeah, uh, that is, I guess, the way that we eked something out of capitalists in the past. But uh, this idea that like it's there, it's like capitalist decisions and like they can be persuaded through like moral argument to be good um, and like public policy. These people have a junior high level understanding of <laughs> politics. It's so beautiful. Well, I, I mean, love I them. I want to, I want to keep them in a little cage with like, <laughs> like wood <laughs> chips so they never have to experience pain. How humanitarian of you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I'm ethical. It's, well, it's funny though because, okay, so like I, I, I've actually, I was, I was looking at something recently that was like talking about, you know, the deinstitutionalization movement, which actually like kind of relates to like the long-term care topic that we're going to get into today. And, and they were saying, you know, like, like when the steel barons needed and realized that they had this ethical obligation to sort of provide for the people. <laughs> they just realized it one day. You know, they just we've, they, Andrew Carnegie wakes up. <laughs> it's like, aha. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like literally framed as the sort of like, we've realized that we have this ethical obligation not to incarcerate intellectually disabled and depressed people, you know, in the United States. And there was a sort of like weird thing where you had activists really pushing and saying this is a moral obligation, right, to uh, release people who are unjustly incarcerated. And you often have the state and lawmakers and businesses and police unions pushing back saying, no, 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 this isn't about morals. This is about ethics. Because what the steel barons were doing was not fucking about morals. It was about ethics. It's like the rules of like, if you don't give the peasants a feast, they will put your head on a pike. Right. Right. Like this isn't it's not about morals. Right. It's never about morals. But I think people like who push this kind of bullshit really rely on like confusing the difference between the two and saying ethics and like thinking that people will read ethics and think morals. Well, I'm considering that their main appeal is to, as we've been talking about, is directly to these business owners, these business owners to be. Uh, you know, to to like take their role seriously and to return to the values of old capitalism or whatever. I mean, it's notable that those situations that you're talking about where th- although the situation that like you're talking about, which is this sort of counterfactual as though there was some sort of uh, like human decency that made it so that Andrew Carnegie and, and right. all these other people like 
uh, decided bequeathed de- to their goodness yeah, on society. A- a- exactly. Like a coin um, on de- the side. Like started up all this, um, all, all of this like charity, charity framework stuff. The actual, like, obviously that is not true, but the actual times when there has been this sort of like attempt from, uh, this kind of sector of society from like a higher class interest or whatever to do the sort of like quote unquote, like ethical thing. It's resulted in stuff like the work cure mm-hmm. framework or whatever, where you have people, uh, who, you have people basically being like re-education through the dignity of work programs. Right, right. And that might sound right. familiar to the stuff that we talk about right now. I'm talking about like the late 19th century. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, and and really, there is this huge distinction between what is like moral and ethical. And often they completely conflict, right? Because like ethics are just norms. Ethics are rules. And often like ethics, you know, what is considered to be ethical, what was considered to be ethical um, at the time that like we're talking about now was like abandoning orphan babies to these orphanages that would just spray them down with water and leave the windows open all God. night to reduce the problem of having too many dependent orphans. And this was like, you know, a common practice. And that was considered ethical because what ethical really is, is a norm and a code and a guideline that's been agreed upon as being the right thing to do and allowable conduct. And like ethical capitalism will always be amoral, anti-poor and racist because capitalism is amoral, anti-poor, and racist. Right. Making it ethical right. doesn't change the fundamental logic of the political economy. Yeah, I guess I take it back. It's less a Burger King Kids Club caucus, and it's more a put the Burger King Kids Club in like a carceral institution for <laughs> juvenile delinquents yes. uh, caucus. Um, I think we should move on, but I do want to say one final thing about this uh announcement uh curiosity which is that my very favorite joining the caucus (laughs) no absolutely not (laughs) my very favorite thing about the caucus announcement that b mentioned um this this like zoom call presentation that they have uh on this like on the on their congressional webpage or whatever um my favorite thing about it is that when you uh, one of the first people to, to speak is representative dean phillips and when you see his office, he has exactly three things on the wall in his office. One is an American flag, of course, not technically on the wall, but you know, it's behind him. Um, Two is a movie poster for the Kurt Russell vehicle miracle. Um, And number three (laughs) is a Hubert Humphrey, 1972 campaign poster. Wow. So I think that really says a lot Ooh. about the sort of political framework and ideology. You know what's so funny is like when I was such watching a winning year for Democrats. <laughs> all I could focus on was next to the flag is a really weird ergonomic pedestal with a single bottle of wine on it to the left of the flag. Also, it's a very unusual zoom background. I'd rate it like a negative two out of five. Yeah, we're sure. later going to find that these are all Masonic symbols of a kind, <laughs> <laughs> especially the miracle poster. Yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> all right. Um, so moving on, we've, we've got a sort of, uh, we're all trying to find the guy who did this situation popping up with the infrastructure bill that's been tossed around in the House and Senate this week. Um, so when the American Jobs Plan was announced two months ago, the inclusion of long-term care funding in Biden's infrastructure package became kind of like a punchline mm-hmm. um, of wonky jokes coming from left, right, and center. And what's happened in the past couple of weeks since negotiations on the infrastructure spending have really stalled has been that you've seen a lot of these bipartisan proposals come out and all these different 
um, modifications to the sort of original framing of the infrastructure spending, which, of course, all drop the long term care angle. And it's not really been covered. Right. Right. I mean, you see coverage of this maybe in like specialty press, uh, right. like the trade, the trade publications or whatever. But it's McKinsey's really, senior living and yeah, home which, healthcare <laughs> news. Things which, like course, things that know, we read, but we I don't read. think anyone else our age probably does. Right. Yeah. And, in the and, industry. and this is it's significant because, you know, what was in this proposal? Again, you know, it's not it's not it wasn't any sort of like radical changes to be said, but it was, I think, 400 billion for. Uh, doing things like restoring this money follows the person program mm-hmm. that, you know, you know, w- would have made it easier for people to get uh, care in their home. Uh, and the and the other sort of critical piece is like work, uh, an investment in the home care workforce, which in many places is so limited because the pay for home care workers is so just Abysmal. starvation yeah. uh, wages. Right. I mean, it's if you know anybody who who does this or you have somebody in your life or you were being cared for by somebody who is in one of these professions, you know that they're paid just absolute garbage, have no like real sort of benefits protections. Like it's, it's a pretty precarious thing. And, you know, obviously the pandemic sort of brought that to light, but I think the just cutting this out of the bill and the fact that it hasn't gotten a lot of coverage, it it reveals about like so much more about the way that the Biden administration is sort of like working uh, Mm -hmm. on these issues. Uh, so like there's there's this whole debate about like, you know, is Biden, you know, just learning the wrong lessons from or just like redoing the mistakes that Obama made uh, in the early part of his uh, administration, where basically is like you did all this like negotiation and like you gave up the ghost on all of these things um, and you didn't really get anything for it. You didn't like win hearts and minds because you're like, see, we tried to be bipartisan. Um, and then you have these sort of like, you know, uh, attempting to be like wiser critics, like, no, no, don't you understand you rubes? Uh, it's just Joe Manchin. Like (laughs) he can't, he can't bargain. Joe Manchin is like the king, right? It's not that like he's, he's just like learning the wrong lessons. He's just that we just have this very, very powerful person who doesn't want anything to do with this. But the problem with that. is that that's not fully descriptive of like what Biden could be doing on issue leadership here. And or anyone else on, for that matter. Or really. anyone right. else, no right? Fucking right. Talk, this becomes, it this. makes it like a whole circus where like no one even has to like address the question of care economy because everyone wants to know about the push-pull that's going on with cinema and mansion yeah. because it's become this like, you know, people.com like 60 minutes version of like, you know, tab- it's like a tabloid right. conflict, right? Well, exactly. So, and what you see in that is like uh you know the the talking points get out of like okay you have this because okay this is top line news right now obviously like you know it's not like no one's talking about the infrastructure bill people are talking about the infrastructure bill but not obviously not talking at all really about the erasure of the care economy um mm-hmm. stuff from it and like you guys are saying basically it's like you know you'll have like um i don't know there's a headline in uh in politico i know that politico is like you know i should expect conservative reactionary shit from them but for i think this is illustrative like there was a headline in politico uh lit quote liberal unrest threatens to doom bipartisan infrastructure <laughs> talks right. and the whole framing becomes because you know you get this like you know not to interrupt your role uh too too much phil but like no no i think the the you know overview is kind of worthwhile to look at which is uh you know as, as b kind of referenced like this gets announced having home-based care and uh like disability long-term care uh included in this 
proposal, the American Jobs uh, Plan or whatever it's called, gets uh, from including liberals, this like and hardy leftists, har har yeah. and some leftists Lots yeah, and leftists. Pl- plenty of leftists gets this like hardy har har like uh, uh, home health care is not infrastructure. Like ha- that's not a road. What is um, everything infrastructure and, now? <laughs> and then and then like immediately it becomes like uh, very quickly the conversation on that like disappeared. It was almost like it became this self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, look at that, like a bunch of people pilloried it um, and just made it into the the butt of jokes. And then not only do you not have, as Phil is mentioning, Biden standing up for it, you don't have, I mean, if you look, if you kind of survey the field for who's talked about this, there's, okay, uh, Pelosi and Schumer have lightly made comments um, about this because like this group of 10, like five Democrats and five Republicans are like trying to advance this other infrastructure bill, which would, uh, which would completely cut the care provisions and cut the, and cut the climate provisions that were part of it, which is seeing a lot of progressive foot pushback, but then like no one's talking about the care aspect. And to the degree that like Pelosi and Schumer have talked about it, they've said like, oh, we need something, you know, if, if we can't get this in this bill, then we need something in the future that addresses climate and care provisions. But it's always addressed in this way where it's kind of conflated or made very unclear whether actually they're talking about child care mm-hmm. or the home health care so it's just not yes. mentioned other people who have who have mentioned this um notably i will say that there's i could find like one instance which was like again only reported in like a home health care trade news publication that uh i guess like elizabeth warren um big old uh, stakeholder capitalism burger king kids, kids club uh liz warren herself said uh said something to the effect of wanting specifically to see home health care in at least a future bill if they do the if they do this sort of compromise or whatever but notably that was at one event, one SEIU event, and in every other public appearance, it's been the same line as Pelosi and Schumer, which is we need to do like climate and some general care stuff. And usually they'll, like, they'll, they'll make statements on the child care portions. They won't make statements on the home health care thing. And, this, and the, the reason this is, this is maddening for a number, like again, for a number of things is that this is always, as we talk about all the time, this is always the thing that... It, even from even from when this was like brought up and it was and became the, the butt of jokes it's like literally everyone just accepts that it is never the time to do this right somehow I, I that mean, it's like politically impossible somehow as though it's as though the care economy or like caring for you know cap- caring for the disabled like is not anything that anyone is ever going to have to worry about right, right. And, and long-term care as you're saying has been repeatedly and unfairly branded as politically toxic both because it's like considered to be baseline too expensive and the idea is that it could never pay for itself because the constituency which um requires long-term care let's be honest like the community who relies on it is politically devalued and ignored and dismissed as defective inconsequential honestly like People who need long-term care, most lawmakers probably in the back of their mind have the framework that, you know, disabled people are, in some sense, burdens that don't really work out at the end of a cost-benefit analysis, right? So it's, you know, these are people who are considered to be not full members of the body politic. Disabled and chronically ill and elders are not considered to be productive members of society. And for decades, like, the austerity mindset that, that like, people have approached long-term care, federal funding of long-term care with, has 
really limited the political will to spend any money, any of the money that we need to spend in order to give people the care that they deserve, which it's not like this is just a moral argument that was made. This is actually a legal promise that was promised at the end of deinstitutionalization to provide home and community-based services and then reaffirmed in a 1999 Supreme Court decision called Olmstead, where they said there is a legal obligation to provide public home and community-based services and providing only institutional services is segregation and illegal. And there has been very little done to even acknowledge this decision. There have been a couple other court cases, but like Bernie Sanders being like, I will honor Olmstead if I'm put in office was like a really big deal. And that was just a symbolic gesture. You know what I mean? It's not like this is like some nice thing that we should do for people. Like, this, if we say that the Supreme Court sets like precedent, legal precedent in this country, then the United States is like delinquent on following through in a decision they made 20 years ago. Right. And I think and I think that like it that sort of political calculus is reflected in a couple features of the legislation that I think allows for the er- like very quick erasure of HCBS from uh, or home and community based services from uh, the the infrastructure plan or the, the jobs plan or whatever. So like pretty pretty quickly after the thing is released, you get this like bipartisan group of uh, ten people saying, "Well, we're just going to eliminate uh, home and community based services because that's not infrastructure." And then like right. there's no like follow up questions on that. Like nope, you know, like, like, oh, why? Okay. Like what? It's like oh okay, but like part of the problem I think is that the Biden administration when it releases proposal, it's not like. Uh, setting out in great detail what those different things are going to be or what they're going to mean for uh, the states that these people represent. It, it's, you know, they're like, the their justification is like, we're going to allow this to be negotiated with Congress. But when you don't put a line in the sand, I'm like, this is what we want. This is what benefits will like uh, redound to the state of West Virginia, for example. Then you allow the policy to become mush and thus never really discussed. So like, it's not surprising that whenever you hear one of these, you know, Rob Portman, for example, yeah, you know, who's like uh, being interviewed about this, like the whole interview happens without them talking about the content of the legislation at all. It's as if the legislation is just an, uh, like an amorphous pile of money that right. is right. like, Oh, you want less in the pile and they want more. And then that, and that's it. So, but like if you, if you, actually began talking in in great detail about what the state of long-term care is in in these swing states or in these states where these pivotal members uh represent like west virginia joe Manchin state uh the median annual nursing home uh private pay cost as a percentage of someone's household income is like it's 354 percent of somebody's household income for like the median uh pay like it is one of the worst states on actually people being able to access home and community-based services. It's far lower on the national average in terms of uh, people who are on Medicaid but can get care in their home. And it has a huge discrepancy in the number of people who are actually able to care uh, for people who need home and community-based services. So, like, you can imagine this this whole idea that, like, oh, these people are just these powerful, pivotal players, and there's nothing to be done. They can't be bargained. You, like, you have to, like, come to them. It's like, well, that's not really true because you're not really taking the opportunity to talk about why this issue is really important, especially in their state. Like, West Virginia has one of the largest, like, aging and disabled populations in the country. And 
the idea that like you oh you just can't bargain with that or like you just have to accept that oh you know well you know he's the pivotal voter like you know, nothing we can do about that that's just absurd right but i think if you're going to get there you have to talk very specifically and you can't just have this debate about like well they want uh, their you know oh that's going to piss off like the liberals like what is going to do it what like is it just that the, like the, the people have preferences over aesthetically what a different amount of money looks like on the <laughs> ledger like that right. can't be the case well which is why it's so infuriating whenever like one of these people like your, your Rob Portman's or whoever like lights off this fucking flare that is like we're going to just talk about I don't know the national debt or how much the like actual like the how much the like dollar figure expense of this shit is going to be that like the press just fucking chases it like it's a like I don't know well like, especially when you have like, him saying the line of like, like well wouldn't it be nice if you had forty Democrats and forty yeah, Republicans yeah but I mean like, uh, but the then what I mean like because what's accomplished in that is just as you're saying the reduction of this to just sort of like a dollar figure like what is it for blah 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 not important what's important is like no new taxes what's important is like this fucking like mythical uh mythical wild beast that no one's ever seen the deficit right and then any idea any plan any sense of what this would be about who this would who affect like, who this would affect who this could help um any meaningful sense of what this was for uh just what what is accomplished is only just the complete erasure of any of this meaningful idea of what this was about in the first place and it was significant that you know as we talked as we've talked about before because we we have for a very long time been calling for very expansive socialized care for like obviously everybody we the, the fucking show sign off is medicare for all now but also you know as part of that long-term care for everybody as much care priority as everybody to needs home services yeah uh priority to home services also stuff like even the most uh, in like the 2020 cycle most recently for example even the most generous like uh disability platforms that we talked about on the show um included stuff like at the very least reducing the um the like burden on receiving things like home-based care to proving like uh one quote-unquote activity of daily living was like needed assistance with and even that i don't think that we like i even that comes from a a historical framework that like we question and i don't think that those right right. yeah i mean so i think it's worth actually taking a second to state what long-term care is because we actually we talk about long-term care a lot and i think the most often question i get after we cover it is um i'm embarrassed to ask but what's long-term care and it's like well no you shouldn't be embarrassed to ask because this is a thing that is invisibilized and you probably maybe have not actually really heard a lot of people talking about it before because people don't talk about it to be totally honest like so you know part of our project here is to make people understand the value of talking about long-term care quite literally that's like we wake up in the morning and that is one of the things i think about every fucking day so like long-term care, right? Long-term care is not necessarily the kind of traditional medical care that you would think of. And a lot of different people need long-term care. Sometimes elders, sometimes people after surgery, sometimes young disabled people, middle-aged disabled people, disabled children, disabled elderly people, all sorts of people need long-term care. Some people need it temporarily after a surgery. And that's not such a big deal because you can get short-term plans that will pay for very short-term coverage or Medicare will cover very short-term 
long-term care needs, but the problem becomes when you need it for a while, and especially if you are disabled and you need it from a young age, because that essentially means that your only option is to do a Medicaid spend down, get your assets below that threshold to qualify, and then get on a waiting list for long-term care, which in some states can be years long. Right. And, and, and every state has different you know, amounts of long-term care that they will even fund in the first place. And right. you have to do all of this like, yeah. And once you get it, as we've talked about often with friend of the show, Steve Way, who has been fighting New Jersey over his long-term care hours for years now to no avail. Once you get long-term care, once you get off that waiting list, you don't get all the care that you need guaranteed, right? You don't get the care that your doctor says you need. You get the care that the state allocates you, right? And that the company contracted to run Medicaid for the state will allocate you. And so what long-term care really is, is it is a bunch of different kind of things. It can be in-home skilled nursing. It can be meal delivery. It can be transportation support. It can be, you know, total 24-hour companionship. And it really depends on the person's needs. So this is a huge, huge, very complex and varying series of, of interconnected types of supports. And like as people move through their lives, they might need increasingly more long-term care. But the problem is, is that the way that we provide it in this country is the most austere way possible. Yeah. And we treat the people who perform these services like they have the least valued labor in the entire country. And the, the fact of the matter is, you would think that maybe that would translate into low costs on the patient side, right? So, oh, if they're paying them shit, you know, does that mean that it's affordable? Well, absolutely not. Because there's usually a company that'll pocket a significant amount of money, pay that worker who's actually showing up at the house pennies. And it's, it's a terribly awful, exploitative circumstance, right? And again, like over and over, there have been attempts to try and include long-term care in broader yeah. understandings of healthcare policy, in welfare policy and social welfare programming. I think a lot of people in the past 10, 15 years have been really trying to push an expansion of long-term care, but it's been incredibly difficult because there's kind of this, this curse, right? Well, Where people just assume it's not going to be deficit neutral. Well, and this is where we're talking about it, right? This is why one of the reasons why we're talking about it right now, which is that, you know, we don't tend to do a ton of like congressional horse race stuff. Um, this is a case where you're seeing, I think actively right now, again, like as of, uh, as of today, when we're recording, at least there's like, you know, a renewed push um, from a bunch of, you know, like a, a wide range of different ideologically positioned, like progressive groups, for example, to like push back on the the fact that like climate change is being written out of this or is written out of the um, quote unquote, like bipartisan, you know, bullshit bill. But compared and, you know, that obviously that's very important, but there's comparatively much less fuss to the point of, as we're saying, being basically almost none on long-term care, home health care, continuing to be included in this or then included in whatever bullshit if they want to, they, you know, they keep saying like, oh, we'll, we'll do this. Uh, we'll, we'll try and pass like a skinny infrastructure bill and then we'll go back and, and do the rest of the big things that we want to do as though that, uh, ever happens mm -hmm. as though we didn't just live through, I don't know, for example, does no one remember in uh, early 2020 when like 
we they pushed through the COVID bill in the first place and said, oh, we'll come back for this and that big thing. And we'll we'll go back for, you know, what, whatever and try and uh, pass this other thing. And it just never happened. You know, right. we talk about this all the time. It's like that, that stuff right. never actually happens. That's just a that's a fiction that lets lawmakers get away with not doing anything. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. Lawmakers promises to come back for the vulnerable populations that they leave out are always, always hollow lies that are meant to buy them extra time. I mean, when they're unwilling to act like what better thing to do than just sort of be like, no, 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 we're going to we're going to circle back. It's a very, very effective tactic of political avoidance. Well, right. And, th- and I think that that is what's being said now is that like, oh, no, no, we'll do. Oh, that's stuff that isn't. And first of all, um, if someone is is talking about their bipartisan um, infrastructure bill that has cut out 400 billion for home and community based services and and a reporter asks like, uh, well, why did you cut that out? And the person's response is because that's not infrastructure. That's not a the answer. Like no one should be able politically to survive right. as a member of Congress while giving that answer <laughs> because the real material realities of not doing something uh, on home and community based services should be very visible, very real uh, and and just like actually confronting people with what what it means that people can't get this it, it should make that whole thing just so politically toxic right but the i i think you know part of it is the vagueness of the proposal itself and like that helps to like enable this sort of thing but i think the other part of it is just this broader um constitutive uh, story about the way that it has become a- appropriate or seen as appropriate to talk about policy, which I do think has something to do with the primacy of deficit reduction and like the institutions that we use to like look at and interpret policy. Like the the main thing that comes out besides the plain language summary is this like deficit impact statement and the like i think that's created this culture where like that apparently becomes the content of the legislation (laughs) and holding people accountable on not doing something that actually meets a real material need becomes more difficult because you don't even Mm -hmm. have legions of people who are interpreting politics that are trained to like do that right and so then if if that's the thing that's really going to like mobilize interest groups in society to like then further put pressure on like that also becomes so like politics you know like it seems to me less and less it's more and more and more and more and more abstract and so yeah just energy has a way of like bleeding out of the system well I, I totally and i think it's like so well exemplified in a line that i've seen so often in the reporting on these negotiations and the sort of bipartisan compromise to just do touch and see infrastructure you know bridges tunnels and roads not any sort of abstract infrastructure like you know you know climate catastrophe and which caring not, for the most vulnerable which is not even abstract right <laughs> you, you know what i mean right. like no, it's exactly. all like actual infrastructure stuff including the long-term care stuff i mean you do you not think Quite a hospital literally. is infrastructure or do you not think like materials or labor for home-based care is infrastructure? And and so it's like people have been framing this as, well, Biden promised a deficit neutral package God. here. And Biden is got to be held. Biden's got to be held to this deficit neutral promise. Well, Biden also promise to eliminate and shorten the like long-term care wait lists. So why is it that the deficit promise is somehow a promise that he must be held to and the long-term care wait list promise is a promise that becomes 
subsumed under the heading of the deficit promise. Like it's fundamental down into the very framing of this deficit promise being some sort of real thing that Biden's got to be held to, right? In saying that that's the real thing and all the reporting on it in the media, they're also saying what's also being implied is that the long-term care thing, that that wasn't a real promise, right? And that's a really important idea because like the the world circle back political tactic is not just for avoidance. It also functionally sets limits like on cultural imaginaries, on what is politically and economically feasible. This is also about the reproduction of norms and the setting of edges on what is affordable and what is doable and what isn't, right? And these are things that we pretend are objective, simple financial determinations, and they're absolutely not. No, I mean, and, and so the, the, the point here is that with all of this, you know, ev- even if, um, you know, these benefits sort of get out there at the end of the day or something changes, like maybe, you know, Biden decides to like uh, just sort of go it alone. I mean, that's going to be hard to do. As long as Manchin is not really challenged on this, as long as as long as there's not like a fight taken to him, it's like, hey, here's what you're doing to your people in West Virginia. Like you care. You say and Manchin's whole line is, well, if I can't justify it to my constituents, I can't vote for it. Right. If I can't explain it to them, do indeed uh, talk about how that would be different if. Uh, it was really, really visible what the state of long-term care was in West Virginia. I, I, be, I bet you'd be pretty goddamn quick to explain why he wanted uh, some uh, HCBS money in there. But regardless of that, I think this, uh, like, there's a very cold and cruel calculation that the administration is making here, um, which, you know, probably has some bearing in reality, but it's a very grim one, which is that, like, well... Um, and I don't think it's fully correct. Also, it's it's like, well, you know, people don't seem to be voting on our policy changes anyway. Right. People seem to like vote sort of sociotropically based on like, well, how do they feel just generally about the, you know, the president, the president's party and like the economy. So like what incentive do we have to include any particular thing in there because people won't notice it anyway, which I think is also constrained by the fact that most most of the policy that like Democrats pass when they're in office doesn't actually have major, huge visible effects. So it's like this 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 like reductio (laughs) ad absurdum where it's like, well, yeah, because in the past we never really did anything substantial that had a very quick impact on people. Uh, We don't know really what the uh, electoral effects of it are. And so we conclude that nothing you can do has one of these big effects. So who we really cares? Possibly start it's just, now. It's, it's nihil it's, it's nihilism as public mm-hmm. policy. That's what it is. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. And again, as we're, as we're saying, I mean, even actually, you know, it's important to acknowledge, I think, you know, for, I don't know, for me, for example, I think like, okay, so a lot of people my age and younger don't really think about, not categorically, obviously, a, a lot of, uh, but I do think that, like, generally speaking, it does. I think, like, something like long term care doesn't read as, like, this, this, uh, you know, super salient, uh, bit, like, big picture idea that would be as fundamentally transformative, uh, that, that could be as fundamentally transformative as it, as it could. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but always again, with the, like with the, again, with the history of the, the politics of these things, um, as we've said, you know, it's this thing that is continually deferred. We vaguely mentioned, uh, often the, you know, the 
like story of how this was uh, like, for instance, like a long term care insurance provision was part of the original Obamacare um, mm-hmm. negotiations and ultimately got scrapped because the idea, the super bright idea that the Obama administration had was let's make sure that it's deficit neutral. Sounds familiar. Um, let's make sure that it's deficit neutral and make it so that, okay, we're going to have basically like a, a publicly run insurance company. Again, sounds familiar considering like the public option stuff that we've talked about recently. Let's have like a publicly run insurance company for uh, long-term care for funding long-term care. And it's gotta be, it's gotta be deficit neutral. It's gotta pay for itself. And the fundamental problem with that is the the reason that these as like commercial products are so exploitative and bad is because as B is mentioning, yeah, you can have maybe a system set up where uh, you know, you know, you have a you have a long term care insurance uh, program that will will pay for a short burst of long term care. But as you might imagine from the things that B was describing, this is going to be the kind of thing that you do need for your entire life, or for or from a certain point in your life to until the end of it. Basically, you can need quite a lot of it, um, and it can be. It's the kind of thing that does need a lot of resources. It just simply that is just simply a fact. You need a lot of resources and what actually happens meaningfully now is basically is kind of one of three things one is like people find like either like from the point that they become disabled or if they're disabled for their entire lives or uh or towards the end of their life they uh they just become basically completely financially immiserated for the rest of however however long they live or end up uh in like institutionalized in like horrible carceral settings um, or basically the, like the responsibility of doing this care work falls on their immediate community or their family or whoever, just because of sheer, uh, you know, like pol- political abdication, like ab- abdication of any action or, or necessity again, historically for decades and decades on this producing conditions of immiseration that for, for no good reason, other than like basically getting to stand up and do like a stupid fucking photo op about how the national debt is important. Right. right? And I think part of the problem is that for literally hundreds of years in the United States, public policy has basically framed this kind of care work as something that the state is only obligated to provide if the family cannot provide it themselves, right? Right. There's this idea that the responsibility for this kind of work first falls on the individuated, like, you know, biological family and beyond the biological family, then someone becomes the responsibility of the broader community in the state. And what that resulted in and has resulted in is, you know, these incredible awful policies first of, you know, just locking people up when their families couldn't afford to take care of them or when they, you know, had children who were disabled, who were not expected to be able to work or marry out of the family. You just ship them off to what often essentially was a a work colony, um, you know, where you have essentially the sort of in the same way that Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks about how in California, the state becomes incredibly reliant on building prisons and increasing incarceration to sort of fuck with state and local funding shortages, right? That it becomes this sort of driver and engine where the sort of processing, maintenance, and warehousing of these bodies becomes an industry in and of itself. And that becomes the sort of sole reason for protecting this kind or or doing anything to this kind of market or care is always sort of about money and it's never about the actual individuals who need this care, right? right? And there's always this expectation that, you know, anything the state is doing 
any anything that they're doing to step in, that that in and of itself is somehow above and beyond what is required of them and that the state deserves a pat on the back because there is this horrible primary dominant idea that, you know what, this is a family's responsibility and disability and disablement and impairment and needing help. That is a curse that a family must deal with. And when they cannot deal with it, when they become incapable, then it's the state's responsibility to reduce the aesthetics of suffering for the rest of the community. And that is like as far as the generosity extends in terms of federal funding or any deference to the needs of this population, which are incredibly obvious and legitimate and totally ignored. Yeah, well said. And I, well, then there's a there's a sort of irony there, too, which is that. The in addition to subsidiarity, this idea that like, oh, the responsibility falls on the lowest unit of society first. Um, there's this idea that like, no, even when that unit cannot provide uh, the, the care that people require, we're going to do not nothing. The state's responsibility, it's like, yeah. We're, we're going to do nothing for them. Right. Uh, because, I mean, if that if it were true that, like, we really cared about subsidiarity, there might be policies that, like, I don't know, we might have paid fan- we might have paid leave or, you know, <laughs> right. any number of other sort of things. Like, But that's also something we don't care about. And I think that that is essentially, I think, reinforced by two things. One is the idea that uh, I think when when some of these key institutions uh, related to uh, aging and disability were created. I think the hope was that people wouldn't live very long. I think the hope was that people would die quickly. And I think that's essentially what is still implicitly hoped. That's Um, the point. Yeah. And, and I think, so that's part of it. And the other part of it is this assumption about ideological uh, hegemony, which convinces care workers that, or, or you know, informal members of families, friends, and so on, that they're that in essentially they don't deserve any support. That they have to do that, and if they don't do it, regardless of what it costs them, regardless of what uh, sort of circumstances it places them in, they're bad people, right? And so, like, in addition to the people who need care not deserving it and and ultimately being abandoned, we're also going to be we're also going to abandon the institutions that in our, you know, neoliberal sort of uh, American style uh, political economy where we, we like prize the idea of like the family as being this like unit of care. We're not even going to do that. We're not even going to finance that institution. Uh, right. So it's it, like. It, it's it's really funny because like the Catholic Church always goes on and on about like subsidiarity and the person's like this isn't subsidiarity this is just like execution well, yeah, uh, and, I mean, of a and, different kind and even I mean I think really importantly further to underline too that uh, that subsidiarity idea rests on this idea that the fa- the family is inherently and always naturally immutably or something a care structure that it is not something that also can reproduce harm that is not something that also can be especially for a lot of disabled people or people who are in any or especially who are any queer kind of, disabled yeah, people it's right. incredibly fucking harmful i was gonna say anyone who anyone who's like not in any sort of normative what is considered normative like sociological position right, right the family can be a structure of immense harm so that's what you know there's there's a lot of like intellectual discussion around the the like family abolition movement, for example. And if you're one of those people and you're listening to this, then 
home-based care, long-term care. Money it. follows like, the person programs, not just even money for children for, like, all too. The, like, but all that, that's why right. our, I think we make it pretty clear that when we, when we say like Medicare for all now, for example, we mean, we mean a whole lot of bigger things than just what is kind of like talked about, I think in the, in, in the imaginary of, of single payer. But one of the reasons that we talk so often about long-term care and are trying, I think in some ways to make it something that like, people don't just fucking laugh off the moment that it is uh, brought up or make it something that is like actually taken really seriously, especially in in left politics is that it is so fundamentally important. It touches everything. Right. So, right. And and back to this point that you made, Phil, about the like, people just think like hope that this population will die soon. You're, you're absolutely correct. And that has always been an underlying philosophy and ideology of a lot of the policies that we've designed to try and allocate funding for this population. You know, part of the problem is when disability determinations are based on this criteria of being able to be rehabilitated for work, i.e. like temporarily disabled or temporarily impaired or being permanently disabled, which is permanently disqualified from being able to work, what you're automatically doing is equating the the label itself, right? The categorization of disabled as this sort of waiting room to die, right? right? You, be, you say, okay, if a disabled person who requires, you know, SSDI or requires SSI or, you know, requires long-term care, that this disabled person is permanently unable to work, which in our society means that you are permanently unable to increase your value to society in theory, like, are we at all surprised that we then approach the sort of problem solving design of this population as if they are a population sitting in a waiting room to die? Right. Right. Like there should be no surprise there because there is this like conceptual foreclosure on that person as a citizen in their disability determination. And so we provide for them as such. So just to bring it back to sort of the bottom line, like passing the buck on long-term care, passing this opportunity to wedge long-term care into infrastructure spending as this conceptual expansion, right? That not only fucks people over in, in real time, it also is functionally limiting and reinforcing the idea that any movement on long-term care is impossible, which is why yeah. it's, yeah, it's so right. important exactly. to not let it become invisible once again. Yeah, it is. Exactly. No, it, that is right. That is hegemony 101. If no one can remember <laughs> what was one, if, if there's nothing to remember what was one, however meager yesterday, there's no incentive for people to win, try to win something tomorrow. That's hegemony right. 101. Right. So, well, and, and every, and, and it's like, if, if you can basically set up a situation where you can't remember what was one, but you can, you, it will always be drilled into Democratic Party politics, it seems like, uh, or at least it, it has been for for a long, long time that anything that even if it was tried in sort of a, in sort of like a straw man fashion or something, it becomes this uh, this like object lesson for, well, you know, remember the last time we tried to bring up long term care as infrastructure? Remember what Matt Iglesias said about that? Mm-hmm. It was so hurtful. You don't want to be subject to those like the butt of those jokes again. You know, something like, like not not obviously not that obviously not that simplified and literal, but the lesson, the takeaway, the oh, well, you know, we tried to politically mobilize for that before. 
I can't remember how hard we tried. I think we tried hard, right? No, obviously we didn't. But like, uh, I think we tried hard uh, on this, right? So like, if that didn't work the last time, how is it going to work this time? And it's like, you know, again, considering that the imaginary for what is already proposed in this like $400 billion, like long term care proposal is already, I think we I think what we talked about the last time we talked about this was like, what's in the American jobs plan on long term care is mostly like the, the long term care parts of it, are mostly like the fucking bargain basement, like baseline of what is like acceptable to even to even start right. doing to even and you know if you can't even if you can't even like stand vociferously behind that then again like what the fuck are you doing what's the point are you right. just there to you know to look good or something <laughs> there are well, a lot of better ways to look good than going into politics i mean it's right? it's also like not that difficult to also force an issue right it we're made to think that there needs to be some sort of grand gesture or some big thing needs to happen like we need to find the right representative to stand up to people or the right person to make the right speech on the right congressional floor or in the right congressional you know uh working group or from the right congressional caucus right and that's a perfectionist fantasy that is not going to serve us any end except for continuing to allow these people to take their excuses and avoid doing things that they do not want to do right well and meanwhile the people who haven't made public who have not made public statements on this yet we see you. (laughs) Right. No. And, and, you know, it's like, it's actually sometimes the smaller things that are really important, which is refusing to let something go, you know, refusing to stop talking about it, refusing to accept the simple arguments that, you know, providing for the margin cases and providing for the most vulnerable, providing these services that are absolutely essential, that we have the capacity to fund, we have the capacity to fully finance federally, and we absolutely should be giving to everyone who needs it, you know, even if they only need a tiny little bit, like the benefits to the quote unquote economy from providing people long term care, you know, that that's like the kind of thing that no, no one's ever going to measure. Right. You can't measure that. The CBO is not going to ever come out with a revenue neutral long term care, you know, score. So it's like it's more important to refuse those narratives wholesale as hard as you can whenever you encounter them. Right. You know, so I think we're uh, we're coming to an end here but i thought i would just surprise you guys with um just a little something on uh on a topic that we have uh that we discussed recently uh relatively recently on the show that i thought might surprise delight and possibly depress you oh Um, great can i can i share a little clip sure okay have you guys seen the clip of um, John Stewart talking to Stephen Colbert about the lab leak theory? Oh, oh Lord, no. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, so here it is. Uh, or here's a, here's, a, here's a portion of it. Um, every, uh, the, you know, liberal darling uh, John Stewart, I think encapsulating some of the worst tendencies of the stuff that we talked about in Lab Bleak, which is all about probably the one place where we will really substantively deal with the lab leak theory uh but here's all right here, here's something away. for just a little um but what do you what what, what, what do you mean by do you mean like oh, so this or perhaps is, there's, there's a chance that this is created in a lab there's an investigation a chance well oh my god I, 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 oh my god there's evidence i'd love to hear it. there's I just don't a know. novel respiratory coronavirus overtaking wuhan china what do we do oh you know who we could ask the 
Wuhan novel respiratory coronavirus lab. The disease is the same name as the lab. Is this what's on TV now? That's just that's just a little too weird. Correlation must be causation. That's just too weird, bro. So wait a minute. You work at the Wuhan respiratory coronavirus lab. How did this happen? This is some really dystopian. The the laughter. I'm just imagining that's like not. And you're like, no. This is horrifying. The name of your lab. If you look at the name. Yeah, that's it. Sorry. Oh uh, my god. Sorry to do that to you. <laughs> oh but, my yeah. god. I was imagining that as sort of a Rupert Pupkin, it, it, like in his basement <laughs> with no one there, just like the laugh track on tape. Like I was, I was hoping that, like the fact that the, the notion that there are real people in that audience responding in that way. Uh, I'm I'm going to just go back under the covers today. That's that's I'll not be getting out of bed the rest of the day. Thank you very much. Yeah, I hope it's like I, I really I I do wish it were like the you know the old joke about TV that all the all that everything on it is canned laughter and all those people are dead. So it's like yes. ghosts <laughs> laughing at this uh, this fucking horrible joke. But yeah, I mean I think that. Yeah, I don't know. Sorry to do that to both no. of you and to the and to the listeners, but I just think that this uh this is a particularly uh emblematic sign. I mean, first obviously like I uh, I hate that I feel like I even have to say this, but like so if you haven't heard like our episode on it, like obviously this is all I, like we think this is all fucking bullshit. Um and there are really good reasons why we think that's uh it's fucking bullshit. And but no, please don't send beyond, us the article that made you think it was real. We've seen it and we're not interested in reading your message about it. Just saying. Yeah, not at all. And beyond... We've uh, discussed the, this. Beyond this. The, <laughs> yeah, we've discussed this, but beyond this, the reduction that he does I think is so hilariously indicative of the entire fucking liberal oh, totally. mindset. Yeah. There's a novel coronavirus COVID-19, which is not called the Wuhan coronavirus, which he says, he basically says there's a quote unquote Wuhan coronavirus and there is a quote unquote Wuhan coronavirus lab, which is not even true. There is a Wuhan infectious diseases lab where they happen the to do Institute study of on virology. The, uh, Institute of well, like, Virology. Right, exactly. There's a Wuhan Institute of Virology where they do do studies on coronaviruses, but like one, not that one. And two, like it is not a fucking coronavirus. Like he's, he, he literally makes the comparison like it's a coronavirus factory or something. That's like just literally completely not what, what it is. What do people so like think the, scientists do all day? You know what I mean? Like I think that his idea of a scientist is like the principal in um, fuck Clone High, who's just sitting there making like weird bio weapons <laughs> and like about Clone High doing <laughs> you know dangerous brand partnerships to sell blue glue, like goo to teens. You know, like do people think, think that, <laughs> that every scientist is like Dexter in Dexter's laboratory, building rockets in a basement and no, weaponizing I, like the flu to kill their rival in gym class? I or think some I shit? think the liberal imaginary of science is like the core two thousand three where it's like uh yeah anthony fauci is like the good scientist who's gonna like lead the lead the i don't know lead the like science team on a uh like a an, an inverse armageddon into the planet as a way as a part as opposed to like away from it yeah i don't know it's uh yeah the left i agree the i hope those people are dead i'll just say that yeah i hope the i hope all those people laughing are long dead and that that is fucking fake because that the, is the really, laugh track is the five people I, you made in hell. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, horrifyingly, I think that you you will be wrong about that. And that's no, I know very, they're back. That I, is, I, that is I'm my. S- 
Shall very... we say my moment of unzen? Oh boy! See, well, I, I had to do that to you. <laughs> you you did that, that to me. me. I come back at you with that. So. I just died inside. Yeah, I'm a laugh track now. You. <laughs> Some people um, should no longer be allowed to be on television. Just saying. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it for today. As always, if you'd like to support the show and get access to all of the bonus episodes, please consider becoming a patron. Patreon.com slash death panel pod. If you want to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, you know, post a selfie in your favorite death panel merch if you have some. And mm-hmm. if not, you can get a cute little Medicare for all hat for summer. Yep. Um, also, just to wrap, um, if you heard our episode "Fake Friends," which we unlocked, where we, where we talked about the the like uh, friends eugenics article and had a had a very good time tearing through that and going through the history of um, eugenics and pop psychology, hard psychology ad- adapted for like social engineering purposes. Really, um, B also uh, went on citations needed to talk to those guys uh, about it. It's really good. It just came out yesterday, so total blast. Um, check it out. Uh, yeah, and, great conversation. Yeah, and we'll see you all on we'll Monday catch you in the patron feed. In the patron feed later yep. in the week. All right. Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
understandably, this next generation that's coming up now, kids about my kids' age and younger, are losing their faith in capitalism. Already less than 20% of millennials define themselves as capitalists. To, to face these challenge, we need to move forward as a country and we will need everyone. Business must harness the power of capitalism to change our current trajectory. We in this caucus have the power to restore what the role of business in society is, 